which he was perhaps the world's greatest expert in his time. Now, this is question 84 here, and the archaeologist is Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. Now, then, the uh, pilgrimage that this man led, many people have been um, influenced by his writings and have read them and benefited by them that do not know the almost romantic story of a uh, lifetime that lies back of these. And uh, Jacob tells us very briefly here. He was a Scotsman and uh, was a student in the British universities and would have become a classical scholar in the British tradition and no doubt a professor in Oxford or Cambridge, but was beset by adversity. I wonder, Mr. Thompson, could God send trouble into our life to steer us in the right direction sometimes? Yeah, I think this is certainly true. And um, adversity uh, blocked his road from what he wanted to do and would have loved to do, and he had to take up different things. And um, this uh, pushed him in the direction of travel in the Near East and researches, especially in the Book of Acts. And it says here that in his testimony at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, he told how that he knew a little more faith than that which consisted in a hunger for truth and God. Circumstances with seeming compulsion headed him in the direction of Asia Minor. Now, what was his theological viewpoint to start with as he left the British Isles and went to Asia Minor? Mr. Denison, very liberal and taking at face value, more or less uncritically, the uh, extreme leftist uh, theological and biblical criticism of his day. Uh, Descartes says this was the heyday of that destructive criticism, this, this negative criticism that tends toward discounting the truth of the Bible, destructive criticism which began in the universities of Germany you might add France had it first, but people began in the universities of Germany and inspired the world over that revulsion from biblical Christianity for which this century has paid dearly. The breakdown of German Christianity and the vast weakness of a still convalescent Christendom and before dynamic evil are two visible results of the reckless scholarship which began with Wellhausen and left no tradition on its tail. Now, it didn't strictly begin with Wellhausen. There was some before his time. He was the father that made it to world renown and note. Now, you see, he says a convalescent Christianity, gradually recovering from this um, atom bomb attack on Christian faith of these critics. And here comes fascism under Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, and so on, Tojo, and then communism. And both of these, of course, uh, bitter enemies of Bible Christianity. And Christian people, with their faith all uh, undermined and eaten out by termites like this, were in no condition to resist this effectually. Uh, mostly they um, simply knuckled under and did what fascist or communist government told them to, and Christianity was pretty well knocked down, especially in Europe. Now then, um, Ramsey 
works in the opposite direction. Question 85. His uh, original belief was this critical scholarship. Uh, Liz Pell, well, when did they hold an church that the Book of Acts was written? People of Randy's day. Late second century, this would be, say, around the year 175. In other words, a good round hundred years after it really was written, and after the events were supposed to happen. These events happened, let's say, in the third and fourth quarter of the second half of the first century, and these critics tell that it was written in the second half of the second century. So there's a hundred years time lag. Now, if you believe in the creation of the Bible by the Holy Spirit, then I don't think a hundred years matter too much to God. I think he could, he could manage it. But if you don't believe in divine inspiration, and this is merely a humanly passed on tradition, and passed on um, in oral form without having been written down, and partly among ignorant people, you see, the door would be wide open for this to get badly distorted and errors to creep in. If we didn't believe that the Bible is inspired of God, and that this is the, because it is the Word of God, it is dependable. Uh, if we believe that uh, this was merely a human book, as lots of people are telling us, and to be treated like one, then uh, we could also say it may be full of errors, contradictions, uh, what the French call false passes, faux pas, and so forth. Now then, um, uh, Ramsey believed this when he started out, and he got a grant from some foundation for three years of research out in the field. And it was there when he got to tramping through the sand and dirt and rocks of Asia Minor that he began to change. And one uh, crucial point that uh, marks the turning of the tide in Ramsey's life is uh, Acts 14.6. Now this is the uh, Bible of Mormons and Telephone Exchange. That's temporarily. Acts 14.6. Uh, they were at Iconium. This is uh, Paul and Barnabas. Were at Iconium, and then uh, there was a movement against them, uh, instigated by Jewish leaders, and so uh, they moved. Verse 5, Acts 14, And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it, that is, they found out about it, and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth round about, and there they preached the gospel. Now, cities, Derby and Lystra, cities of Lycaonia. They went from Iconium to Derby and Lystra. Derby and Lystra, or that is a dodo, I believe, today. Iconium is still there and doing business. Uh, Few if any Christians there. They were all killed at one time. But um, Konya, K-O-N-Y-A, present-day name of Iconium. And another day I want to read you from Morton's book, something about what he found at Iconium, or Konya. But critics jumped on this statement in Luke, in Acts 14, where Luke said that Paul and Barnabas escaped or traveled from Iconium to Derby and Lystra, cities of Lycaonia. And the claim was that um, these cities were not cities of Lycaonia, and therefore uh, Paul had goofed. 
And the Ramsey proved Paul correct and the critics wrong. And if the book were written in the end of the second century, this statement would be nonsense because the geographical names and frontiers had been changed by the year 200. But in Paul's day, middle to latter part of the first century, this statement was strictly correct. Now, I brought a book along here to try to get you this uh, in the clear. This is the University New Bible Dictionary. A good book if you've got 12.95 to spend, and let me tell you, you can get it for about $8 or something like that from the Puritan Reform Discount Bookhouse in Wilmington. It pays $3 a year membership, and you get a very substantial discount on any book that they'll sell you. I've got one of these for somebody, and well, I think they consider me a special friend. I've done some things for them. I got it for seven seventy-seven, but I don't think anybody gets quite that good. But anyhow, this is a good book and, and up to date. Now, under the entry, Lyconian, you want to note this down to look it up later yourself. This is the New Bible Dictionary, and it's page 760, the first column. Lyconian. Now, I'll read you this. A territory in South Central Asia Minor, so called from the Lyconians who inhabited it. Mentioned by ancient writers from Xenophon, early 4th century B.C. onwards, in Pompey's settlement of Western Asia Minor, 64 B.C., the western part of Lycaonia was added to Cilicia, the eastern part to Cappadocia, and the northern part to Galatia, which became a Roman province, 25 B.C. Eastern Lycaonia later became independent of Cappadocia, and from A.D. 37 onwards, formed part of the client kingdom of Antiochus, king of Comagene, and was known as Lycaonia Antiochiana. And the, you think of Columbiana, Ohio, when you hear that name. In the New Testament, Lycaonia denotes that part of the territory which constituted the region of the province of Galatia, Lycaonia Galatica. Lystra and Derby are designated cities of Lycaonia in Acts 14.6 in a context which implies that Iconium lay on the Phrygian side of the frontier separating Lycaonia Galatica from Phrygia Galatica. Now these three, these three cities were all very near this border but uh, the statement in Acts implies Iconium was on one side and Lystra and Derby on the other. Only Lystra and Derby are called cities of Lycaonia by Lystra, and the other one is not, so he singled those two out. Now, to go on with this, William M. Ramsey has put it on record that it was this geographical note that led to his first change of judgment with regard to the historical value of Acts. Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, A.D. 47-48, doubtless recognized they had crossed the linguistic frontier between Iconium and Lystra, or in the latter place, near modern Hatun Sarai, that's the Turkish name, they heard the indigenous, indigenous population use the speech of Lycaonian, Acts 14.11, Lycaonisti. Lycaonian personal names have been identified in inscriptions hereabout, for example, one at Sidassa, which records the dedication to Zeus of a statue of Hermes. Compare Acts 14.12. Acts 14.12, 
They called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercury because he was the chief seeker. You see, this fits the discovery of an inscription of an image or, or something dedicated to uh, Jupiter or Zeus and Mercury. Now then, um, when after leaving Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came to Derby and planted a church there, they turned back. Had they gone further, they would have crossed into the kingdom of Antiochus but it was no part of their plan to evangelize non-Roman territory that is, at that time, of course. Now then, that's it. with regard to this alleged mistake of Luke, which Ramsey says was no mistake at all. This was right and the critics were wrong. Now then, coming over to page 95, the last couple of sentences on that page, that's where there's a picture on the top of the page. And in the middle of that paragraph under the picture, near the bottom, it was gradually born in upon me. Let me read this like it is in the book. And see if you can figure this out. You can, like, your IQ is like the fellow said to the army doctor, 20 cents. Now, <laughs> uh, this makes sense, too. I read them away. Look here, son. It was gradually born in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. In fact, beginning with a fixed idea that the word was essentially came to find it a useful ally in some obscure and difficult evidence as trustworthy for first century conditions, I gradually came to find it a useful ally in some obscure and difficult investigation. All right. Does that ring a bell? Okay. Well, whether you agree with me, this is mixed up. Now then, I'll give it to you straight in a little bit. I trace it. The first mistake in this, the word word is a misprint for work. In fact, beginning with the fixed idea that the word, this is work, meaning a book, see, the work. And uh, this is quoted, as you'll see by the little footnote on the next page, from Ramsey's book, St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen. This book is printed, uh, this is by William Ramsey, a learned book on Paul's travels, and first published in 1895. And this one that I have here, reprinted by the photocopy, photolithic print process, 1949. Page for page, identical with the original, with a photograph from it. And this is, uh, this is, this comes from an era when the proofreaders uh, stayed sober. And, uh, <laughs> at least they were supposed to. And this is the sentence, as it is in Ramsey's own book, from which Blakelock quotes it. Uh, page 8 of the St. Paul of Traveling Roman Citizens. In fact, beginning with the fixed idea that the work, that is the book of Acts, that the work was essentially a second century composition and never relying on its evidence as trustworthy for first century conditions, I gradually came to find it a useful ally in some obscure and difficult investigation. But there remains still one serious objection to accepting it as entirely a first century work and so on. Now, does that make sense? All right, now I'm going to turn this off a minute. This particular place about Iconium, Lister, and Derby was the beginning of the turning of the tide for William Ramsey. And this impressed him very much with the accuracy and the, the dependability of Luke the writer. And there's also a paragraph in the middle of 96 in the Blakelock's book that I'll read. Such was the beginning of a long process of delighted discovery. 
which convinced Ramsey that in Luke the historian he was dealing with one of the great writers of Greece. For accuracy of detail, for evocation of atmosphere, Luke stands in fact with Thucydides. The Acts of the Apostles is no shoddy product of pious imagining, but a trustworthy record of great events, and it was the spade work of archaeology which first revealed the truth. All right, any questions to that point? Now then, 87, what inscription found by Ramsey at Lystra confirms a reference to Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts? You recall it because they called them Paul, Jupiter, and Barnabas, Mercury. In Greek, this would be Zeus and Hermes. Uh, King James Version put it in a Latin equivalent for it. And uh, this was the, what they experienced at Lystra. These pagans, ignorant, of course, and superstitious and idolaters, this uh, amazing miracle happened. And um, they promptly conclude that men that did this are no humans there. God come to earth in the likeness of men, and they call one of them uh, Zeus and the other one Hermes, the messenger of the God, who uh, does the chief speaking. And um, here Ramsey found an inscription, uh, a monument, I guess we call it, um, uh, dedicating a statue to Zeus and Hermes. This is evidence that these two... Uh, divinities were um, especially uh, important or revered in that particular locality, because this is part of their local faith or religion. And so this is a little touch of local color about what the Lycaonians at Lystra called uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas to show um, the, the accuracy and how uh, even in a little touch of local color like that, it fits what has been discovered by archaeological investigation. Now, crossing over into Europe, we have the city of Philippi. And it is described in Acts as the first of the district. Philippi. And a colony. Now, a colony means it's a little piece of Rome away from Rome. I've heard of people having a home from home, but this is Rome from Rome. And um, everything would be exactly like in Rome, only on a smaller scale. And uh, this is a little uh, city that is a replica of Rome in Greek territory, Macedonian territory. And um, first of the district, and Fort, a British scholar who um, a couple generations ago with Westcott got out the um, critical text of the New Testament, Westcott and Hort considered uh, epoch-making in the best of its time until Nestle's came out to, partly based on it, and the Bible Society got one today that got the best of Westcott and Horton, Nestle both, and the, from the papyrus manuscripts and so forth, too, incorporated into it. But Hort was the great scholar, all right. Trouble with Hort was he wasn't any cubby. That's trouble with him. <laughs> no, let's say he wasn't a strictly orthodox Christian of any denomination. And uh, he was uh, conservative, but somewhat influenced by uh, opinions of his day. And uh, he said, Luke made a mistake. In the first place, this word translated district, which is meris, M-E-R-I-S in Greek, uh, couldn't be used in Luke's time to describe a region or an area. That's the first thing. And secondly, that uh, he said it isn't true that Philippi was the first city of the district. 
Now, in answer to this, Ramsey cleared this one up, too. And he found uh, inscriptions enough that show that this word Barris was still used at that time in the first century to describe a uh, geographical district or area which was uh, not necessarily uh, limited by a particular political boundary, but the first of the regional area of district. This is shown by papyri. So, uh, Wyckoff says that the papyri proved that Luke's Greek was better than that of Dr. Hort. And uh, I guess this is true. And secondly, with regard to whether Philippi was or wasn't the first city of the district. Now, what does the book have to say about this one? First city of the district. Yeah, Mr. Harris. Does Philippi consider itself the first city of the district as a common term among the now, what's the best Christian college in Western Pennsylvania? Of course. <laughs> However, you don't expect people who live in New Wilmington to say that. <laughs> of course, obviously. Uh, in answer to the question, where did Cain get his wife? Geneva College, where else? A little girl was telling a playmate, she says, my daddy went to Harvard. Playmate says, my daddy went to Harvard too. Is there any other place to go? <laughs> Now, we would, uh, I hope we have uh, enough uh, confidence in our college and uh, college spirit and loyalty to say that with all our faults, and truly they're bad ones, neither is the uh, best Christian college in Western Pennsylvania. I don't think this is the main boasting. I mean, we're trying to make it the best Christian college in Western Pennsylvania anyhow. And let me tell you, what counts about a college is not um, does it have some faults, but in what direction is it moving? Are we getting worse or are we getting better? That makes a difference. You know, if you're down with, um, let's say, uh, smallpox or bubonic plague or measles or something, uh, you'd be pretty sick for a while, but it makes a difference. Are you getting better or are you getting worse? If you're getting better, the outlook is good. And we claim to be getting better, not getting worse at Geneva. All right. Now then... Uh, this was a title that cities uh, with a Greek background earnestly coveted to be called the champs, the first city of the district or area. Every city wanted this honor. Most of them couldn't have it. But Amphipolis was really the, technically, and in, in sober facts, the Roman capital of Macedonia, Amphipolis. And uh, this, he says, was read it as the first city of Macedonia or of this district by general consent. But Philippi, they had some local spirit. And they didn't admit this, that Amphipolis was a better or more important city than their own, not a bit, not for one minute. But the first city of Macedonia? Well, Philippi, of course. Who would ever dare to think anything different? So this is the opinion of the people. Now, Blakelock says, and Ramsey said, that Luke is using the common designation and parlance used by educated people of his day. He's not going to enter into this dispute between Amphipolis and Philippi, but he's writing about Philippi, the things he's telling about happened at Philippi, and Philippi was called the first city of the Maris, the district, by its own citizens, and so Paul uses it. This isn't a blunder, it's maybe a little bit partisan in favor of Philippi, but it isn't a blunder. This is what the educated people of Philippi called it. And this is proved by 
uh, whole series of inscriptions and so forth that have been found in this place. So Blakebox and Ramsey comment on this, that Luke has exactly picked up the not only correct facts to the situation, but the local feeling about them. And this reflects a uh, grassroots uh, familiarity with how people talked there and how they felt and thought that would be almost impossible for anybody to fake or forge writing a hundred years later. You see, there's strong evidence of this. It's, it's uh, corroboratory evidence in this way. Now, there's another example of this kind in Acts 17 about um, um, Thessalonica. And Paul calls the rulers, uh, Luke, uh, rather, in his book, Acts, calls the rulers of this polytarchs. Uh, this means, literally, rulers of the city. Archon would be a ruler, and Polis is a city. Polytarchs, the city, what well, we say, the city father. This is the council man. But the term in Greek, polytarchs. And this term was unknown anywhere else except in those two mentions in the Book of Acts. So liberal critics said, throw the Book of Acts out because this isn't mentioned anywhere else. Uh, Mr. Beatty, if you'd find $100 uh, digging in your garden, would you say, I've never found $100 anywhere else, therefore I'm going to sell this house and property and not keep this garden. And I won't believe that this $100 I found is genuine because I only found one. $100 bill, see? You'd keep looking. You'd keep looking. All right. That, however, suppose you never did find the one. Would the fact that you only found one prove that um, it was not genuine? Of course not. And you see the psychology back of this. You know, some people enjoy indoor sports, and some of them like ping pong or table tennis, and some of them like to play uh, chess, maybe, or canasta, or something like that. And others take pot shots at the Bible for an indoor sport. This is considered a form of a sort of relaxation. Like it says, Esau went around comforting himself intending to kill Jacob. Well, these critics, they go around comforting themselves and building up their ego by taking pot shots at a better man than themselves, namely Luke, the historian. <laughs> and uh, the fact that this was only found twice in, in known ancient history doesn't prove a thing. It just proves it's only been found twice, that's all. <laughs> and, uh, it may be found other places yet, or it may not be, but that doesn't make any difference. Uh, a writer who is um, overwhelmingly shown to be accurate on um, 500 or more other counts, you don't throw him out because he uses a word twice that isn't found other places in ancient literature. But that's what the critics did. Now then, um, this is uh, vindicated by uh, archaeology, the uh, word... Uh, Polytarch, uh, this was, um, where is it, bottom of page, uh, no, I turned over too much here. Polytarch, uh, page 97, and, um, yeah, this is, this, this is, um, this is question 90. Uh, this word is found, he tells us here, high and clear on an arch, manning a street in modern Salonica. There it is, stir up overhead. For anybody that wants to look at it, it's been hard to see it. And 16 other examples of this word 
Polycarp. Um, so um, let's say Luke was right, and Ramsey is right, and Blakelock's right, and Foy on the critic. <laughs> now then, um, the um, another important work of Ramsey concerns the North and South Galatian theory. Who has had Dr. Tweed's course on New Testament epistles? Well, all right. Mr. Garrett, uh, what is the North Galatian theory? And Mr. Dennison, after her, what is the South Galatian theory? <laughs> all right, Mr. Garrett. Yeah, and this told that the Epistle to the Galatians was written to a group of churches otherwise unknown along the southern shores of the Black Sea. Uh, get those maps down with too much trouble. The southern shores of the Black Sea. And that this is what is meant by Galatia. And this was, this was widely held. Now, incidentally, there's another mistake in your book, if I'm not mistaken myself. Page 100, the first paragraph that starts on that page, it was perversely assumed. I think that is intended to be previously assumed. <laughs> it started perversely. But the other way. <laughs> Previously assumed. All right. The North Galatian theory, prior to the rise of the genuine archaeological investigation of the New Testament period in Asia Minor, was widely held. hundred years ago, this was widely held. North Galatian theory. Uh, based upon faulty and incomplete geographical data from ancient times, and... Uh, Today, this has been largely discredited. Now, Mr. Dennison, what is the South Galatian theory? Uh, it was really a Spaniard that in the church of Galatia, written to the churches, and put it in names, in that. Yeah. Like, uh, Iconium, Yeah. Now, this is almost universally held today that the churches to whom the epistle of the Galatians was written were those at, near, and around Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, sort of in the center of Eastern of Western Asia Minor. And um, Christianity was very thriving there for a long time. It was later in the latter part of the very bitter Roman persecution, ruthlessly stamped out, and apparently every last Christian was killed. And there were no Christians left in that area to carry on the church. They won the crown of martyrdom and continued the Galatian churches in a higher plane of existence. But um, later, missionary workers resumed there after the Roman persecution was over. But the later churches established in there around the year 5 or 600 A.D., in there somewhere, uh, far from the doctrinal clarity and evangelical purity of the churches founded by Paul, and uh, mixed up with a lot of uh, more or less medieval distortion, Mr. Harris. During the Roman persecution, wouldn't that have been better for better for the church to decision to make, but Tertullian lived in the second half of the second century, was it, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
Jesus said, they will put you to death, but there will not a hair of your head perish. Therefore, to a Christian, death is not what the world thinks it is. Tertullian said, we are of yesterday. Where you kill one, there are soon ten. Where you kill ten, there are soon a hundred. Where you kill a hundred, there are soon a thousand. We are of yesterday, and yet there is no city or town of any size in the Roman Empire that does not have the honored graves of the martyr dead. Now, if these people had compromised, the result of this would have been a syncretism of Christianity with Roman paganism. Why? No. <laughs> well, what was demanded was that they worship Jesus. They were not, Mr. Harris, not simply to say we're not Christians. They have to commit an act that was considered idolatry. You, you put incense on charcoal in front of the image of Caesar and you say, Lord Caesar. Uh, oh, and this involved, therefore, a denial of the unique lordship of Christ and the unity of God. Well, these people were, were I suppose, everyone given the choice of, of denying Christianity and showing this by an act of pagan worship, which they wouldn't do. And there were, there were those that did, of course. And uh, there this gave rise to the Donatist controversy. Uh, Augustine, one of his books, Contra Donatistos, against the Donatists. The Donatists were a um, deviant sect of Christians, apart from the Orthodox Church, who held that those who had lapsed under persecution could never be restored. God may forgive them, and we'll hope to see them in heaven, but they're never going to get them back in our church to take communion again, not after they have once denied Christ under persecution. This is what the Donatists demanded. They also held that the the acts of a minister or priest, um, the validity depended on his personal character. If he had baptized people, later it turned out that he was a hypocrite, or he denied Christ under persecution. All those people got to be baptized over again. It doesn't count. This is what the Donatists felt. Augustine argued against it, and the church decided against it, and the Donatism died out. Augustine and the church council said that um, it was a grievous sin to deny Christ under persecution, but not uh, an unpardonable sin and that these people were to be received back in love, and after giving them due evidence of their sorrow for their sin and of repentance, the church was to receive them in love and fellowship again. Would you say that was right? Sure. And to the Donatists, they were the hardliners, you know. They, they were the super, super, super strict. And, uh, no, I heard about a, an old colored man tried to join us uh, the elite church in Philadelphia somewhere, and uh, they didn't want to tell him. They didn't want him because he was black. So the uh, elders, the best thing ever was, they said to him, "Be sure it's the Lord's will. You better go and pray about it." So he said he would. He prayed about it and came back a month later. He still wanted to join. Yes. So did you pray? Yes. You asked the Lord if you should join this church. Yes. What did the Lord say? He said, Charlie, it ain't no use for you to try to get in that church. I've been trying to myself for over 50 years and haven't succeeded yet. 